Well, I was very tempted to uh, title my sermon today, uh, How to Work for a Jake. Uh, we're not going to title it that because um, I thought that was sounded a little bit too respect- disrespectful. But um, I'm sure you'll know what I mean though, won't you? How to work for a Jake. We've all, I suppose, at one time or another, experienced the injustice of a boss or a manager who is just plainly unfair towards us. Sometimes it's the lack of effort of colleagues and the fact that the boss apparently is blind and can't see that you're the only one who's doing any work. You work so hard, you don't slack, you don't pinch minutes or hours even here and there. Everything is done by you in a conscientious manner but you have a colleague who just seems to know when the boss is coming, like a radar. And uh, he spends most of the time chatting with secretaries and pretending to be busy at his screen in the office. Often you've even given him the info he needs to make up for his lack of effort so that he won't get into trouble. Yet as soon as the boss comes around, our friend knows how to turn it on and uh, to liven up and to show his best side and he's loud and he doesn't hesitate to slip in the successes he's been having. And more than this, he knows how to take the boss perhaps to one side and tell him the odd joke. And, um, and the boss thinks that this fellow is a great fellow. And then the time comes for a promotion. And it's the other fellow who gets promoted and not you. And you just think, why do I bother? Why do I bother? Sometimes I suppose it's not the fact that the boss is um, a bit blind, but it can be the fact that the boss is just unscrupulous and horrible. And uh, I suppose there are a few people who've experienced what that means. Working for a horrible boss who doesn't seem to respect anyone, who doesn't seem to have any care for his staff, who just barks out orders and uh, treats his employees as if they were objects rather than real human beings work is just not fair is it that's many people's experience how on earth do you work for a jerk well here we are going through this letter of Peter and we've reached a point where Peter is getting very practical isn't he and he's urging Christian believers to live in a particular kind of way and we've already seen on his mind is the whole subject of authority and how we as Christian believers react to authority it says a lot about us doesn't it how we react to authority and he's, we, we were thinking last week from verse 13 about how we should behave in relation to civil authorities, governments uh, and, and sort of national authorities in that sense but now Peter changes his, his, his attention to the world of work so maybe we can change our title to a little bit more respectful one the world of work that's what we'll call it okay we're we're going to think about the world of work now there's a lot of questions here in this passage to answer and uh, maybe before we begin to see how relevant this is to all of us whether we work or not and I think uh, probably the most obvious question here is why is Peter going on here about slaves (coughs) And how do you relate that to the world of work and employment? We don't live in a culture that has slaves. (coughs) Although some people do think that their work is a form of slavery, of course. Um, I think there are two dangers here. One is, and I really want to appeal to you to, to tune in. One is that we miss the relevance of this completely because we think we don't have slaves now. So this doesn't apply to us. That could be a danger as you read this passage. We don't have slaves now, so this was relevant then, but it's not relevant to me now because we don't live in that kind of culture. This is just some old writing to people who did have slaves or who were slaves. If we uh, succumb to that, we'll completely miss the whole thrust of what Peter wanted them and us to know by the Holy Spirit. So let's, first of all, just be aware of that danger that just because we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily have a culture of slavery in it, that this is not relevant to us. Okay? 
I think the second danger is not that we would say this is irrelevant, but we might say this is completely and utterly immoral. This is another danger that many people have used references to slavery in the Bible (coughs) as an evidence that the Bible condones this sort of thing. And maybe you've come across someone who makes this kind of comment, I don't believe the Bible. The Bible condones slavery. How can you believe in a, in a religious book that seems to condone slavery? The reason for this is that, this is what people say, why is it that in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and all the other writers, nowhere in the New Testament do they condemn the practice of slavery? So they must be condoning it. Why does, why does none of them say slavery is an evil thing and is a scourge on society and should be abolished completely? They must have agreed with it. So that's another danger when we think about slaves and, and what the New Testament says into this culture. I think this is uh, very wrong. Uh, and I want to help you understand this. The Bible is not primarily a political textbook. And uh, I know you would agree with that. It is not a textbook on what the ideal culture should be. It certainly isn't a handbook on what Western culture should be. The Bible was not written primarily to correct the prevailing cultural norms of the Roman Empire. It seems like the Bible works on the assumption that these things will come and go in different cultures at different times. But the Bible is far more concerned with a Christian believer's attitude. And how should a Christian believer live within such a cultural norm? The Bible isn't concerned with revolution on a national scale in that sense. What the Bible is concerned with is the growth of the gospel and it's concerned with individual behaviour people's motives attitudes and inward inclinations of course it's very possible that when enough individual people experience the life changing power of the gospel that cultural norms will be good and healthy and just and fair and peaceful but Peter's focus here is not on condoning slavery or abolishing slavery but on instructing Christian slaves as to what their attitude should be within that cultural norm at that time. So if you hear someone who says, I don't believe the Bible because it condones slavery, you can say, no, 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 these guys are not condoning slavery. What they're trying to do is help Christian believers to live within a culture that condones slavery and what their attitude should be within that culture so I hope that's clear we need to understand here that Peter is writing into social norms and he's not seeking to change them he's telling his readers how to behave within them and that doesn't imply that those norms are right what he's focusing on is the individual Christian believer's behaviour is that clear? well we need to think a little bit as well about the first century don't we? either way we need to understand about this idea of slavery in the first century to get the full impact of Peter's words here and how they relate to the world of work. (coughs) When we think of slaves, I suppose we tend to think about William Wilberforce and we think about John Newton and the slave trade. Maybe some of us might think about America and the whole issue of slavery in America, particularly from a racial perspective. Uh, as well I think we need to when we come to New Testament put some of those ideas from recent history to one side because I don't think the first century was like the idea of slavery that we've seen in our more recent history in America and in this country in the last few hundred years so maybe we need to sort of um, do you remember those etch-a-sketch things that you had as a kid maybe we need to like wipe the screen clean so we can draw again a new picture of what slavery looks like in the first century. So you can clear all those preconceptions away. And we're going to think about the culture that Peter was writing into. 
I'm not saying that that implies that the slave in the 5th century was a good thing, but uh, it's a different thing. Uh, <clears throat> I've been reading up a bit. <coughs> Excuse me, coughing by the way. Hay fever. Um, I've been reading up a lot about this this week. And uh, the first thing to say is that slavery, we presume, is um, probably began in the Roman Empire, Empire by conquest. So as the Roman Empire expanded and other countries maybe were conquered, uh, captives would be brought back and they would be put to work. And I suppose uh, you would describe that as slaves. But by the time the New Testament is being written, Peter's writing here 30 odd years after the time of Jesus, I'm told that in the Roman Empire there was as many as 60 million slaves. That's almost the population of, our, of the UK. That is a lot of people. And in the time the New Testament was written, some of these slaves would have been uh, far more than just menial labourers. Slaves would have been doctors, teachers, musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards. All of these categories of employment were slaves. It seems like in the Roman Empire that the idea was that work is bad. And should at all possible, at all costs, be avoided. And if you could afford it, you'd made it really. If you could employ people to do the work for you, so that you could sit back and enjoy life's luxuries. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Nothing much has changed there, has it? So the idea of kind of having slaves was really about the avoidance of having to work for yourself. Often slaves lived as part of the household. Some of them were almost part of the family. And many slaves would be greatly loved and had good masters. And they lived in good households where there was fairness and they were cared for and treated very well. For some people, (coughs) if you offered yourself as a slave, it could even be a way of achieving a better life. I was very fascinated by this stat, um, if you can follow this. One writer I came across did some sums that showed what an average wage would be against the cost of basic living in the Roman Empire. So what would, a, what would an average man earn and what would it cost for food, clothing, housing? And uh, this man calculated from the evidence he sort of collated that what was left over as disposable income after all of the expenses of basic living were were spent was about 35 denarii. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told when he talked about one denarii being a day's wages? Well, 35 denarii would be left over from your wages once you've paid for your house, your clothes and your food. 35 denarii. However, if you were a slave in a reasonably good position, you would have all of your basic needs met. You'd have somewhere to live, you'd have clothes provided, you'd have all your meals provided, and generally, a reasonable master would give you living allowances of five denarii per month. It's 12 months in a year, that's 60 denarii. So if you were a slave living in a reasonable, with a reasonable master, your disposable income would actually be double that of a free man who was working to earn his way in the world. That's unbelievable, isn't it? So actually, if you went out into town, you couldn't tell the difference between who was a free man and who was a slave. Often a slave might actually be better dressed than a free man would be. So being a slave in the Roman Empire for some people, was a way for, you know, to achieve a better life. Actually, I'd be better off finding a good master and offering myself to his service. I'd actually be better off financially by doing that. 60 million of these slaves. And uh, so we, I want to get away from this idea of slaves looking like scruffy, poor urchins and uh, be it having a really raw deal because that wasn't always the case in the Roman Empire. Many Christians in the first century will have been slaves and part of local churches. That's why Paul writes (coughs) so often about slaves. He says 
in the letter he wrote to the Christians in Galatia, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you were baptised into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What a revolutionary idea that was. You could go to a church where a slave might be an elder in the church and his master might be one of the church members. How about that in the Roman culture? Revolutionary ideas. The gospel kind of transcends these cultural norms and speaks right into them. So I want to drop these thoughts in for you to think about. So that's the, that's the good part. The bad part, on the other hand, <coughs> is, is this. The big issue in the Roman Empire was that in law, slaves had very little employment rights. So it might be a good thing for you to be a slave. But if you were a slave, there was no protection for you in law at all. Slaves generally were legally considered to be on a par with other things that you owned. I suppose in our modern parlance we might say, you know, if you owned a tractor, you know, you can do whatever you like with it. If you owned a slave, that's the kind of level that slaves would be considered legally. Some masters would obviously treat slaves with far more respect than that, but that was the legal position. Aristotle said that a slave is a living tool. You've got screwdrivers and tools in your toolbox. A slave is just another version of that. Someone, <coughs> I think someone else said, the only difference between a slave and an animal that you might own is that the slave can talk. So it may be a good thing for you to be a slave. The downside would be that in law you had no employment rights whatsoever. There's another writer from Roman times, Peter Chrysologus, uh, sums it up and he said this, whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly, in anger, willingly or unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly or unknowingly, is judgment, justice and law. In other words, a master could do whatever he liked because a slave was just another piece of property and if a slave was mistreated there was no protection in law you couldn't go and appeal to the police and say my master's just beat me up because in the Roman Empire that would be considered to be normal you're just a piece of property so although many masters would be good and fair as Peter says it here I, I think that brings alive I hope the verses here, look at what Peter says again in verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, because many would be, but also to those who are harsh. Doesn't that kind of make it come alive? He's writing right into that culture. Many people would have great masters and they were well cared for, but others do you know that word harsh? I was looking at that in the Greek. And uh, that word harsh really means it, the, the tense is a present tense. And the idea behind the Greek word is someone who's being continually pummeled. Imagine that. Imagine that. If you're a slave and you just felt like a punch bag. And every time your master was annoyed, he just gave you a kick as he walked past. You know, And that's your sense. You've just been continually bruised and pummeled all the time. What a way to live. That's what the Greek word behind the word harsh means. Some masters would be like that. And Peter says, submit not only to those who are good, but to those who are harsh, who constantly pummel you. Submit to them. Wow. This is a massive deal then. Can you imagine if the Bible was concerned with abolishing slavery? The whole growth of Christianity in the first century would become politicised, wouldn't it? 
Christianity would be part of a battleground where you'd have slaves resigning. I'm a Christian now, I'm not working for you. You'd have masters going out with placards saying, bomb the Christians, you know, they're all rebels. There's no way that the Bible could speak into that situation in a political way without causing bloodshed everywhere. That isn't the primary concern of the Bible. Eventually, of course, it would change by God's providence. But for now, what the Bible's concerned with is how should Christian slaves and Christian masters behave as a result of their faith in Jesus within that cultural norm. It's thought-provoking, isn't it? Peter even tells the runaway slave Onesimus, who ran away from his master Philemon, and uh, Paul uh, comes into contact with Onesimus and he's converted, he becomes a Christian. And Paul says, Onesimus, you need to go back now to your master. And he write, Paul knows Philemon is a Christian and he writes a letter to Philemon and sends Onesimus back. You can read it in the New Testament, maybe we'll study that. Just one chapter, Philemon, just towards the end of the Bible. Paul even tells this runaway slave to go back to his master. So in time these issues would change, but for, the, for now the issue is, how do you live in this culture as a slave or as a master and demonstrate your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Just coming back to the question of whether this is a relevant thing for us, you could read this as we said and think, well we don't have slaves now. It's not relevant to me. Given what I've just described, and given what Peter says, surely, if these words are relevant to slaves in that culture, they can't be less relevant to us in a culture where we do have employment rights, can they? If Peter's telling them to submit to a master who's pummeling on them every day, it can't apply less in a country where there is no slavery, can it? This is the worst possible scenario. And Peter says, submit to your master. So he can't be arguing for less in an environment where there is good employment laws, such as the country that we live in. So this is more than relevant, isn't it, on that basis? Well, let's come <coughs> and have a look at what Peter actually says here then. I hope it's kind of dawned on you already that what Peter says here is utterly, completely and radically abnormal. It is just completely abnormal. And I don't want you to miss this first reality. His main point here, I suppose, is that the character of the boss should make no difference to how we behave. If the boss is good or if the boss is bad, it should make no difference to how we behave in that working environment. What a massive challenge. I don't think any of us have an issue submitting to a good boss, do we? We've all perhaps had experiences of bosses who really do care and they're fair and they're clear and they communicate well and, um, and it's a joy to work in an environment where you know the boss has got integrity but what Peter writes here is a very powerful comment on human nature how on earth do you submit to a boss who isn't like that who is really a jerk how do you work for a jerk when we face injustice, something rises within us, doesn't it? That is powerful and irresistible. We hate to look weak. We hate to feel someone has got something over us. We long for the offending party to be punished and sorted out and get their just desserts. And how dare they behave in this way to me, of all people? What did I do to deserve this? Well, I've only tried to do what's right. And isn't it incredible? It's like a power within us that rises up. And it's human nature, isn't it? We just want justice to be done. And we can't bear to be on the wrong end of justice. 
And so what Peter says here is very hard. I want to say to you, this is impossible. And I I really want to help us to think through uh, these things. This is impossible. This is not normal. Let me give you four examples of what would be normal reactions to a horrible boss. And maybe you recognise some of these. It is um, the first one. Mr. Victim. This is the first reaction. Uh, this is the guy who says it's not fair. Why does this always happen to me? I just seem to be a magnet for horrible bosses. Every job I've ever had. Woe is me. I've never had a good boss. What, what is it with me? I seem to apply for these jobs and I just get abused everywhere I go. You met people like that? I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I want to say to you that Mr. Victim, his primary issue is he's just depressed, isn't he? But what Peter writes here is a very powerful comment on human nature. How on earth do you submit to a boss who isn't like that, who is really a jerk? How do you work for a jerk? When we face injustice, something rises within us, doesn't it? That is powerful and irresistible. We hate to look weak. We hate to feel someone has got something over us. We long for the offending party to be punished and sorted out and get their just desserts. And how dare they behave in this way to me, of all people? What did I do to deserve this when I've only tried to do what's right? And isn't it incredible? It's like a power within us that rises up. And it's human nature, isn't it? We just want justice to be done. And we can't bear to be on the wrong end of justice. And so what Peter says here is very hard. I want to say to you, this is impossible. And I I really want to help us to think through uh, these things. This is impossible. This is not normal. Let me give you four examples of what would be normal reactions to a horrible boss. And maybe you recognise some of these. It is um, the first one. Mr. Victim. This is the first reaction. Uh, This is the guy who says it's not fair. Why does this always happen to me? I just seem to be a magnet for horrible bosses. Every job I've ever had. Woe is me. I've never had a good boss. What, What is it with me? I seem to apply for these jobs and I just get abused everywhere I go. You met people like that? I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I want to say to you that Mr. Victim, his primary issue is he's just depressed, isn't he? None of us have an issue submitting to that. Jobs like that are worth their weight in gold. And maybe even a little bitter. He's very confused and upset and it makes him lethargic. And all he can talk about all day long is how bad things are. He's in this kind of cycle where because no one has ever given him any credit, he's lost sight of his own worth. There's no point trying my best because no one notices anyway. It's like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. Woe is me. That's Mr. Victim. I think that's a fairly normal common reaction to a workplace that's unfair I think we meet people like that every day and maybe there are times we fall into that trap as well I think at the other end of the spectrum what about Mr Militant this is a a guy that believes that everyone should fight for their rights (laughs) I'm not giving in to this woe betide me if I've become depressed this guy's not depressed, he's angry. Man, he's angry. You leave it to me. I'll go and bash the boss's door down and I'll give him a piece of my mind. I can't believe this place. Never had a job as bad as this. Who does he think he is, this boss? I'll go and sort him out. Fight for your rights. You deserve better than this. In fact, you're entitled to it. Isn't that the cry of our culture? It's so significant that Peter says what he says in a culture 
that we would be appalled by, wouldn't we? You would think that Peter would be starting some sort of Christian organisation, wouldn't you? I don't know, there'd be some good acronym for it, wouldn't there? Maybe I should have thought of one before. You know, fight for your slaves, fight for your rights. Peacefully demonstrate, let's get rid of all these harsh masters. Peter doesn't say that, he says submit. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Mr. Militant would laugh at that, wouldn't he? Give over. I'm going to bash his door down and give him a piece of my mind. You're entitled to better than this, Mr. Slave or Mr. Employee. Don't settle for less than the very best. Go and tell him. Pin him up against the wall if you have to, Mr. Militant. What about this guy, Mr. Calculating? I've worked with a few people like this over the years. This is the idea. Listen, this is, this is one of your colleagues. You, you start working a new place and one of the colleagues comes over to you. He's been working there for 20 years. He says, listen mate, don't work too fast. Don't let them see, them, in inverted commas. Don't let them upstairs see that we could work much harder than we do. It's not kind to your colleagues. It'll embarrass us and it'll show us up and you'll stick out like a sore thumb. So just, you know, don't try too hard. This is the deal. They don't pay us enough here. Okay? If they paid us more, we would work a bit harder. But what we've done is we've worked this out. Because the pay is lower than what we're really worth, we basically slow down our work to the level of pay that they give us. And that's fair, isn't it? We've calculated that because the pay is lousy, we're just going to work at the level where the pay is. It's funny how people like that, they move to another job on more pay and they don't change. What's more, we don't feel too bad throwing the odd sickie. The holidays are rubbish here. We're entitled to more than that. Although you need to be careful because don't take the third Wednesday in every month off because they look at charts and they can tell you're doing that. So you need to mix it up a little bit and don't do it all at the same time. Very helpful colleagues. And uh, with the expenses, because the pay's lousy, you need to just claim a little bit more. If you do a little trip for the business, tell them you've done an extra 20 miles and it'll just top up your pay a little bit because you're worth it. Don't work any harder. And never ever buy your own stationery. My kids have grown up and learnt to colour on this company's letterheads. It's fantastic. These cupboards in the corner have got loads of markers and pens and paper. Just take what you need. Don't take too much, but just take what you need. You never need to go to Staples again. That's just a good part. Imagine how someone like that would react when the boss actually does something bad. Mr. Calculating, we've all met them. We've all met them. I would say to you that Mr. Calculating is just plain lazy. He's just plain lazy. All of this is an excuse, isn't it? But how often this goes on in every workplace. And it's just accepted, isn't it? Like slavery was once accepted as a cultural norm. Mr. Calculating... What about this guy? This is the fourth one. I've just got four of these. Mr. Wright. He's very similar to Mr. Militant. But I want to highlight this character a little bit because he's different to Mr. Militant in the sense that the reason he's angry is because he's hurting. I want to say to you, maybe you recognise this person in the workplace. Some people do have a very heightened sense of right and wrong and they believe that they have the moral high ground and you'll hear people like this perhaps saying things like this is outrageous absolutely outrageous this is bordering on criminal can you believe what this person is getting away with someone needs to sort this out and they become very angry I'm right I have justice on my side very heightened sense 
The problem with this person though is that often the underlying issue behind their anger is the fact that they're hurting inside. Something is eating away. Maybe some injustice in the past that's been done to them. It's like a mag- you know when we were kids we used to get magnifying glasses on a sunny day and we used to sit in the fields with crisp packets and uh, the sun would come through the magnifying glass and you'd be able to pinpoint it on the crisp packet and you could melt it, maybe even set it on fire. Such a py- pyromaniac as a child. But that, that sometimes that's what bitterness can do, isn't it? It, it? it kind of focuses all the heat, all the hurt, all the sense of personal injustice, it's not fair, onto one particular issue. And we become like a dog with a bone. This is not right. And the underlying issue is that we're hating. We're hating. I think people like this uh, uh, are perhaps very common. And I think you can, you can spot a person who has this trait when they begin to justify their criticism and their anger by pointing out more and more loudly the injustices that are there. So you might have a friend and say, come on, it's not good for you to get so het up about this. And they go, what? Are you crazy? Can you not see what I can see? And they start talking even more loudly and even more aggressively about all the injustices that have been done. What's really going on there is that the person is saying, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm entitled to be critical, judgmental, but it's not my fault, it's the fault of these horrible people over here who've done wrong. And it's all kind of mixed up in there. I wouldn't be angry like this if it wasn't for so-and-so. You get the kind of idea. So this person is a bit like Mr Militant, but the underlying issue is a sense of hurt. I was just reading um, the American uh, preacher and writer John Piper and I I don't think I could say it better than he says it here. And this is a challenge for Christians as well. He says this, there are lots of people who, if you point out to them that they seem to be unduly angry or bitter or critical or slanderous of others, immediately tell you about how badly they've been treated or how they've been let down or how they've been hurt. There appears to be this automatic and deeply rooted sense that if I've been mistreated or let down or hurt, then the other person deserves to be shown up and brought to justice and paid back and therefore I have the right to make sure that happens and I can use criticism or slander or put-downs or threats or grudges to make sure they get their comeuppance. I think John Piper is getting very close to the heart of the issue when he adds this comment. It seems to me that less and less Do I hear people these days say, yes, I have been unfairly hurt, let down, mistreated, and yes, they do deserve to be shown up and brought to justice and rebuked, but no, I will not be bitter. I will not retaliate, I will not criticise or slander, I will return good for evil, and I will bless rather than curse. Piper is speaking to Christians when he says that, not non-Christians aren't in the workplace this is so radical isn't it I wonder whether we recognise any of those four traits I want to say to you my point primarily is that all of these attitudes we've been discussing are normal (laughs) you'll see these people every day we know these traits we have these traits they're part of us and they almost become accepted because they're entrenched in our human nature And I want to ask you, can you see how powerful Peter's words are now? What is your attitude to authority in the workplace when you're treated unfairly? Do these kind of things rise up within you? They do within all of us. If they don't, see me afterwards and uh, you'll have to tell me what the secret is. When we're treated unfairly, these things will rise within us because it's part of our fallen human nature. 
victim, militant, calculating or justifying. Do you know what? The truth is, it takes a miracle of God's grace to behave in the opposite way to what I've been describing. You cannot do it unless God changes your heart. I was reading one story about a young lad who was in the army and uh, I think they'd gone on some fitness exercise and this kid had collapsed and the sergeant came up to him and kicked him in the ribs. Get up! And he, he just abused him. And the poor kid staggered back to his dorm. And the next morning the sergeant got out of bed and he's getting dressed and he put his feet down and he noticed that his boots were shining and he kind of made some inquiries and it became clear that when this young lad had got back to his door he'd gone and polished the sergeant's boots and the sergeant went to him deeply moved and said why on earth would you do that for me and he said because Christ has given me a love for you and the sergeant later became a Christian through the act that is not normal to our culture that almost sounds twee but that's Christ working through someone isn't it submitting to authority even when it's harsh and repaying good for evil that is the spirit of Christ as we'll see you can't do it unless God changes your heart I want to give you three bunches of fives <coughs> this morning is that okay not physically I've got three bunches of fives I want to give you five reasons why God makes a difference to your work and because these issues are quite complex and individual I want to give you five questions to think about and apply to your own situation and then I want to give you five attitudes to cultivate practically so that we can take away something practical so if you're making notes you've got a big advantage because there's 15 things there, three bunches of fives. So first of all, five reasons that God makes a difference to your work. <coughs> and we're back in 1 Peter here, so just look with me if you've got your finger on the page there. <coughs> uh, the first thing I want to say is when you obey your employer, one reason that God makes a difference to your work is because when you obey your employer, you're obeying God. I want you to notice what Peter says he says in verse 19 it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering why? because he is conscious of God that makes a big difference doesn't it? what is happening to me in this situation is not the only thing that's going on the thing that will make a difference is to realise that God is present with me in this injustice. And I will submit for his sake because when I obey my boss, I'm obeying the Lord God. I think this was true also for the previous issue about civil authority. Do you remember he said submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority when you obey civil authority you are doing it because you are submitting first to God irrespective of whether the government is a good one, a bad one or an indifferent one when you submit and be a good citizen as far as you are able you are doing it for the Lord's sake it's the same here with this issue the second thing our second way in which God makes a difference to your work is because you are representing Jesus in this world. This too was true for the previous issue, wasn't it? Peter is very concerned that these people, though they are, in a real sense, strangers now in this world, they are still in this world. And part of what's going on here is they're demonstrating a new way of living. How they react to authority, either civil authority or a boss, good or bad, will say something about their faith in Jesus. 
and that will make a difference. That is an important part of the question. It isn't just about me. It is also about Jesus now. You're a witness. Peter confirms this uh, here in the strongest possible terms, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He says it's not commendable if you get told off for doing something wrong. But it's enormously commendable if you suffer when you are treated harshly and unjustly. That says a lot about your faith in Jesus. And we're going to go on to see half of the passage we read, more than half, speaks about Jesus. We'll come back to that. A third reason why God makes a difference to your work and this is very clear here in this passage, is that that God has called you to this kind of radical submission. It is a privilege. In verse 21, Peter says to these dear Christian believers, even Christian slaves who are continually being pummeled, he says to them, astonishingly, God has called you to this. We could spend the whole time just reeling from the shock of that statement, couldn't we? This is not something that is happening in a corner somewhere where God can't see it. God is sovereign and he has called you to this kind of radical submission. I I don't know whether this needs to be said. The truth, why does it surprise us so much when life is unfair? And we just kind of react against that as if this is terrible. As if life should be fair. Peter says, God has called you to live in an unfair world. These things will happen. You will come across people who will tell lies about you. Who will ignore the good that you do. Who will malign you. That is the way the world is. It is not a good world out there. And you've been called to live in this world in a different way. And not to react to that injustice and unfairness and harshness in the way you once would have. But in a new way now, because of Christ. You've been called to this. Does that change the way you look at injustice? Often we're so quick to want to escape, aren't we? But actually this is part of life in a broken world. And we need to deal with it, don't we? Sometimes life is unfair. And to this kind of radical submission you've been called. In the Philippians chapter 1, <coughs> Paul says this towards the end of that chapter, whatever happens, he's, he's in prison when he writes this by the way, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then two or three verses later he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him. Go home and read that verse and think about it this week. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 It has been granted to you. This is a gift. On behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him. This is an enormous privilege. To live in this sin-spoiled world in a different way and to bear patiently the unfairness of life because of Jesus is an enormous privilege. I don't know if we hear the gospel preached like that. Come to Jesus and he'll make everything fine. Actually, you come to Jesus and everything could go pear-shaped. It would in this culture. I've talked to people who've said ever since I became a Christian my life's gone downhill. Paul says, Peter confirms it here, you've been called to bravery, to bear up in the face of injustice, to man up and have some bottle and not just to wither and die every time something unfair happens. You've been called to this. This is how Jesus lived. I want to give you a fourth reason 
that should make a difference in the workplace when the workplace is unfair that this pleases God this, the end of verse 20 if you suffer for doing good and you endure it this is commendable before God that should make a difference to us as Christians shouldn't it you face unfairness, injustice, brokenness all sorts of things when you go into that with the spirit of Jesus bearing it patiently and cheerfully for his sake it makes God smile how awesome is that God is pleased with that kind of reaction he doesn't want you to react in an ugly destructive sulking bitter way he wants you to submit to him and bear patiently injustice isn't that thrilling that our reaction can make God glad wow that should make a difference to us shouldn't it all the things we were saying before are normal reactions this is the abnormal part no this is abnormal when you behave like this you will stand out like a sore thumb in this world it won't be long before people are asking you how come you're different well that's a great opportunity isn't it for, for Jesus sake there is another way I want to leave the fifth reason to the end because it's the best so we're going to talk about the other bunch of fives now and then we'll come back to the fifth reason why God makes a difference at the end ok so leave a, leave a little gap on your page and we're going to talk next about five questions to think about I'm well aware that all of you work in different places and it's hard to be prescriptive to individuals isn't it what works for you might not be right for someone else in their workplace and I don't think Peter's prescriptive here he's trying to deal with attitudes but I want to give you five questions to think about in relation to your own work and if you want to talk to me about some of this afterwards that would be good so here's the five questions first of all is my attitude at work one of respectful submission I suppose if you're not in work is my attitude in life one of respectful submission it's not just work is it is my attitude one of respectful Submission. The reason I say that is because Peter goes on for two verses about the fact that sometimes you'll get punished by your boss because you've done something wrong. And the amount of times you hear people who rail against that. I can't believe my boss just said that to me. It's like, you've been late three times this week. Get real. (laughs) People complain when the boss tells them off for doing something wrong. Peter says, there's nothing commendable about suffering when you've done something wrong. What he's talking about here is not that. So we've got to ask first of all, is my attitude at work one of respectful submission or am I an awkward employee? If you're an awkward employee, this passage isn't for you. If your boss is beating you up because you're being awkward, then maybe you've got something to learn from your boss. And maybe if you're having consistent problems at work, this is a question that you've got to ask. Is my attitude right? Sometimes I think people attribute their problems to a bad boss when actually their attitude isn't right in the first place and they blame the boss even when the problem's theirs. Can I ask you, do you make your boss's life harder or easier? That's a good question to think about, isn't it? Am I a thorn in the flesh at work to my boss? Or am I a delight to have as an employee? What is my attitude really like? It may be that you have a harsh boss and some of those things he doesn't even notice. But I want want you to think about that question. When when I used to work at Gascoigne Wood Coal Mine, as a younger man, I worked on the surface, not underground. It was a massive place. This is where all the coal from the Selby Coalfield came out of the ground. Two conveyor belts, ten miles long. And all the coal came out. And my job was to manage the mechanical side of all of that site on my shift so I had a walkie talkie 
and a Land Rover. It's great. Driving around the site, and if, if there was a breakdown, the controller would say, Hello, Ian Jones, CO1 conveyor's broken down. I'd jump in my vehicle and go and have a look, and then call the other guys to come and fix it if, if there was a problem. One day I was driving down the side of CO1 conveyor, which was very long, and a guy in a little, in a little um, one-man JCB digger came shooting out of an entrance. He slammed on his brakes. I was probably driving a little bit too fast, as you could probably get. And this little JCB just nudged into the door and made a little dint. These JCB drivers were contractors, so I didn't report this little incident because I thought, if I do, it's possible this guy might get fired. But I also, you know, I was a bit embarrassed. I'd had a little prank. And the chief engineer found out and he called me into his office one day and he said, I believe you've had a crash. And he said to me, I was only young, and he, he, I think he wanted to teach me a lesson. He said, I'm going to ban you for a week. And on a big site like that, you know, it's like catching, you know, having to walk everywhere rather than catch the bus. And my face just sank. And I, like a sullen teenager... And he looked me right in the eye and he said, for that, you're banned for two weeks. Now get out. That's what Peter's talking about here. I didn't have a leg to stand on. Poor attitude. We've all been there, haven't we? My face sunk, a bit of a sulk. And he was as sharp for that two weeks. Is my attitude submissive and respectful? On that occasion, it was far from it. Who did I think I was? It's, it's kind of hard to think about your own reactions, isn't it, when they're bad? So there's one for you to think about. Is my attitude one of respectful submission? We need to crack on here, don't we? <laughs> um, secondly, I might just think about me. This is the big issue, isn't it? Self. Is my concern just for me? Would I be as concerned as I am if this injustice was somebody else? Or is it just all about me? Am I actually concerned about my boss as well? Do, do I actually put myself in his shoes and think about his side of this? Or is it just all about me, myself and I? Am I comparing myself with other people too much? Instead of drawing my standards from God? Do I have the full picture? This is an issue for employees sometimes, isn't it? The number of times you know, I hear my own staff sometimes at work saying this. You know, I can't believe they've done that. And you just think, yeah, you've no idea of the whole picture here. You've seen one thing and assumed the worst, and then you're going on about how hard it is. But if you knew the rest of it, you would understand. Sometimes it's good to just stand back, isn't it, and think, this is not just about me. There's bigger things going on here. Sometimes we're very quick to think someone's getting at me. It might not be that someone is getting at you. It's not about you sometimes. Sometimes there's a bigger picture going on. Also, am I open to God teaching me something new through this difficulty? Does that occur to us when things are going wrong? Is God trying to teach me something here? Maybe I just need to stop and slow down and think, Lord, what do you want me to learn in this situation? Sometimes we're quick to fire off insults and criticisms and blame everyone else and we miss the opportunity to learn, don't we? Thirdly, how can I best demonstrate my faith in Jesus in these difficulties? We touched on that already. I want to ask two very practical questions. Is it wrong to question my boss? Uh, No, it isn't. And I don't think Peter means that here. Jesus was not always silent when people criticised him. Paul also was not slow to defend himself on occasions. I don't think there's any real answer to this apart from encouraging you to think things through and examine your motive and attitude. You need to think very carefully in the questions I'm saying. Am I just doing this because I'm upset? It's not wrong to question your boss. But is my attitude right? Or am I doing it in a sullen, awkward rebellious spirit or am I doing it for the good of the organisation and for my boss and for me and for others 
So that's kind of, it's not wrong to question the boss, but we need to think that through. I think the other question is, in our culture, it wasn't possible for slaves, but do I just need to leave? If I've got a really horrible employer, is this passage telling me I should stick at it for the next 50 years, like a millstone on my neck? Well, of course, it's not true in our culture. You could just look for a better job, and I don't think that's wrong. I don't think this passage is saying that. Just a word of caution, though. Uh, Some people are very quick to make decisions, sometimes knee-jerk ones. Uh, Some people do have issues with authority and can be defiant and impulsive. Um, I think if that's you, I would think twice about making a decision too quickly. Sometimes we need to think very carefully about our reactions Sometimes God will deal with injustice by releasing you from it. But sometimes it is right to stay because God has something to teach you or because God has something to teach someone else. So I don't think we can be hard and fast about that. But if you're prone to making knee-jerk reactions and being impulsive, I would say slow down and don't be too quick to run away because God might have something more for you in this situation. The words Peter uses here describe the idea of remaining under pressure, choosing to stay under it. And for some people that will be necessary and for others it won't be wrong to decide to leave and to get a better job with a better boss. Oh, that's kind of helpful. Very quickly then, five attitudes to cultivate. This is the guts of it really. I I would suggest that it's good for all of us to cultivate a teachable spirit if your boss is trying to correct you or teach you or instruct you in some way don't be like me and go like I did with Mr Dixon the chief engineer be attentive be respectful have a teachable spirit secondly don't join in complaining about your boss or put him down behind his back with everyone else that's important isn't it that's part of submitting be respectful even when he's not there that doesn't mean you have to be sycophantic and praise him all the time but don't follow the gravy train of you know complaining and whinging about the boss all the time thirdly be consistently diligent We said at the beginning, the character of the boss shouldn't define how we behave at work. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And it's not our subject today, but he goes on to say, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. So there's a word for bosses there as well. So there's three. Number four, we've touched it already. Be respectful in your tone and body language. Don't be disrespectful at work. This is true in all of life, isn't it? Our culture is a culture of disrespect, isn't it? Kids who sit there, I'm not doing what the teacher says. Disrespect, it's a case, isn't it? What a horrible thing it is when people are disrespectful it's good it's good for Christians to be respectful for Jesus sake and I want to suggest fifthly do you pray about your work do you pray for your boss do you pray for your colleagues do you pray about your working situation hope you do well I said at the end we'd come back to the last reason why God makes a difference and we just need to close with this very quickly there's the four reasons we had and the fifth reason is when you behave like this Peter says you're following the pattern of Jesus himself 
Peter quotes Isaiah here in verse 22. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving your example that you should follow in his steps. And he says four things about Jesus. He never sinned. He wasn't deceitful. He didn't trade insults. Verse 23, when they, hurled, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. Often you see someone call someone a nasty name and they just think of a worse one and hurl one back. Jesus didn't trade insults that were getting worse and worse. He just kept his own counsel. And he made no threats. That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't make threats. He didn't say, one day you'll get your just desserts. Just wait. Just you wait. You've got it coming to you one day. He didn't make any threats. And how is it possible for Jesus to behave like that? Well, Peter tells us the answer at the end of verse 23. Jesus entrusted himself. He left his case in God's hands. That's where authority really starts. He put his case into his father's hands and said, I'm trusting you. This is not fair, but I'm putting it in your hands. Help me. Make justice come about in this situation. One writer says this, Our task is to trust him by submitting to human authority even when we're treated unfairly. And the great goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus. Which sounds wonderful until we realise that being like Jesus means submitting to authority even when it's unjust, submitting to please God and bear witness to the lost, following Christ's example as he went to the cross. It means not retaliating when we're wronged. It means entrusting ourselves to our righteous judge knowing that someday he will right all these wrongs. The last thing that I want to leave you with is this. The relevance of the cross. Peter says that Jesus suffered for you. Can I say something to all of you now? This passage tells you everything you need to know to be saved. Jesus suffered for you. He came into the world and suffered injustice so that you could be forgiven that's the gospel but Peter also says he suffered for you leaving you an example it's marvellous that isn't it the cross says both those things it saves you and it gives you an example of how to live in this broken world so I want to challenge you if you're not a Christian I want to challenge you to come to Jesus and trust in him it's death for you <coughs> and if you are a Christian I want to challenge you to be like Jesus in this world and follow his lead what a big subject the world of work